0: reading this evening is from 1 John, starting at verse 12, chapter two. 1 John, chapter two, verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.
1: Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit you will touch us in our hearts, our minds, and our wills to be attentive to Scripture. Especially we pray for understanding of not only the passage we're going to be looking at, but its implications for us as a church and the way we live our lives day by day. So speak to us each one, we pray, dear Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. What we heard read, of course, uh, readily divides into two parts. They're fairly obvious, at least in most versions. Uh, Verses 12 to 14 form one kind of paragraph 15, to 17 another, and our heading uh, for tonight says there's sort of two digressions, but that isn't quite the way John's letter works. Uh, For some of us, the fact that he doesn't develop his arguments in what we call a lineal, logical way, going from one step to the next, and therefore this follows and then that, makes him, say, less interesting than reading Paul's letter to the Romans. That, for some of us, um, reaches us more directly and easily, because in our Western way of thinking, particularly, we are inheritors of that sort of Greek style of writing, which likes everything set down in an orderly way. Well, for those of us, which includes a bit of me, who like some sort of order, I've got six points this evening, they're not all massively long, you'll be relieved to know, but uh, there's the lineal approach. And uh, I'll be touching on that in just a moment. But there are others of us who learn, not in a lineal way, but in a very repetitive way. And it's quite possible that the way John writes his letter gets through to us more than the way Paul writes some of his letters. He is repetitive, he goes forward a bit and then he goes back, just to make sure we've got the previous bit. Then he moves forward, he's always moving forward, but um, the loops back sometimes catch us out. Now whatever way we learn, and some of us are a bit of both, uh, what we need to do is to be profoundly thankful to God that in the way he speaks to us about who he is and who we are, he does in a way that we can understand. You see, if he doesn't get the truth of a cross to us through, say, Romans, he'll get it through to us through one John, and for most of us, it's both. And we need to be thankful that what we have in Scripture really speaks truth into people's hearts and minds almost anywhere in the world. They understand, by God's grace, what it's about. So... Let me begin in a slightly Johannine way and say what is it that we've learnt so far from John's letter. Here's the first observation the Word of God, which John and the other apostles have uniquely witnessed, is actually Jesus Christ Himself. He is the Word of life. In other words, what we have in John's Gospel which he wrote earlier clearly, his letters and what other apostles described to us in the New Testament, and of course the prophets of old before that in Old Testament days, all of this is the truth about God and it's also the truth about ourselves. And we've got something of that in the opening paragraph of chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The word of God is the word of life, and it is to be trusted. And then secondly, John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that, if you're following the text, is verse 5. If our understanding of God is distorted, then everything else about life, to a lesser or greater extent, will also, for us, be distorted. And that's important to remember as we think of the difference, as John wants us to, between being a Christian and being someone who isn't actually a Christian as yet. If our understanding of God is absent, and not only distorted, then clearly everything else will be out of joint. And between what he's written in the gospel and what he's got here in his first letter... John takes us to the very heart of the nature and being of God, and he does so, uh, for example, in three very pithy sayings. If you like to follow with me, John chapter 4, verse 24. We don't need to look these up, but you'll, you'll be familiar with the words. He says, quite simply, God is spirit. And that's a key, key statement in that context. And then in his first letter, chapter 1 and verse 5, as we've just seen, he tells us God is light. And that too is fundamental. And then further on, towards the end of the letter, he tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, that God is love. What he tells us, what God tells us, is true. God is truth. An error can have no place with him. And what God commands, and we saw last week that he does expect us to be obedient in what he tells us about the way we should live, what God commands is for our good. Because God is good. And evil can have no place beside him. So, between gospel and first letter, if nothing else, we've got these three, and of course they're not the only statements, but three quite marvellous statements about the very nature of God. God is spirit, God is light, God is love. And if we take the Bible seriously, we can't stress one without stressing the others because they all hold together so that our understanding of God is real and authentic. So to my third observation. And... uh, It's rather negative, and it's it's not comfortable to hear this spelt out, either in the Gospel of John or in his letters. He says, he reminds us quite simply, that it is a terrible thing to be walking in darkness. And the double tragedy of that is that it does not need to be so. So, And perhaps one of the best-known verses, because we use it often week by week, is the reminder that we are sinners, and uh, to be a sinner is to walk in darkness. But you see, what he's flagging up too is the great privilege we have as Christians. We have, in fact, turned from our sin, we've walked out of the darkness... And in walking in the light, as we now do, not only can we know the reality of our sins being forgiven, but we can enjoy, and this is another key word in John's letters, we can enjoy fellowship with God, friendship with God, relationship with God, and as a consequence with each other. Now, the false teachers then, and often today, and they're around us, outside, and within, sadly, the structures of the churches, the false teachers seek to play down the harsh reality of sin. If you hear people saying, even those claiming to be Christians, well, it doesn't matter that much, does it, how you behave? John would say, wrong, emphatically. How we behave reflects what we believe, and if we behave as if nothing is essentially right or wrong, and as if there is essentially no good or evil, we clearly don't know God, because belief and behavior hang together. Sometimes... They encourage us to think that walking in darkness, because for many, perhaps the majority of people around us, that's normal, it is thereby made acceptable. They even suggest that how we behave ultimately doesn't really matter. God is love, and he'll sort it out for us. But you see, when that is all you hear, you have to ask, well, what about God is spirit and God is light? There's an inevitable link, for example, between God as light and the very fact that he cannot bear sin. And the wonder of the cross, in part, is that Jesus takes, as it were, the brilliant light of God's judgment on us as sinners so that we can walk in the light in safety. Sometimes the false teachers then and now say it doesn't really matter even what you believe so long as you're sincere. And Jesus and John says, "Wrong again." So m- let me share this as my fourth observation. As we come to our senses and you can hear an echo perhaps in that of one of the stories in John's gospel and elsewhere as we come to our senses and confess our sin, we learn to trust in Jesus as our sin-bearer. Then it is that we walk out of darkness into the marvelous light of God, who is both light and love. So here's my fifth observation. It brings us, I hope, straight to verses 12 to 14. And it's this, God who is both light and love, says John, he will enable us to persevere. And at this point in his letter, it's as if the aged apostle, and he was really quite old when he wrote this, uh, gets up out of his seat and puts his arm around your shoulder or mine and says, Dear son, dear daughter, uh, don't give up. You will get through. You will make it to the end. He's very fond of referring to fellow Christians as dear children. We've got it at the beginning of chapter 2. My dear children. And we've got it here in verse 12. I write to you, dear children. And then, Uh, In verse 18, dear children. And then in verse 28, now dear children, continue in him. And it's not only a word to us, it's an enormously powerful term of endearment. It's quite hard to get across in our English cultural context. If anyone um, foolishly watched the Argentine soccer match this afternoon, they would have seen every time, as Argentina advanced, uh, the Argentines watching, or their sympathizers, gave each other hugs, and uh, it was very expressive. And you see, there's something of that in what John is doing at this point. He isn't just writing a letter that's somehow detached and distant. He's saying, but my dear children, in Spanish, it's hijitos, queridos. Uh, and it always comes with an embrace. And there's something of that in what John is doing at this point. His purpose is to bring to us all the encouragement we need to persevere. Persevere. Now, if you look at those verses, you'll see that he seems to be writing to different kinds of people. Um, Dear children, in fact, is all of us as Christians. Some have been Christians for almost as long as John the Apostle had. They are, as it were, the fathers. Others are the young men or the young women, and for the fathers we need to think of older women too. And the younger men or the younger women to whom he writes represent the new generation of Christian believers. And here's the point, and I find it a hugely exciting one as well as a great challenge, Together, they need each other. You need the older people, the John, the Apostle John and his generation, and the next one, and the next one, and the younger men and women, all together for the church to grow. And if you look at those verses, 12 to 14, with that thought in mind, you'll see that together, they will walk in the light knowing their sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's verse 12. Together, they are growing in the one thing that really matters, and that's the knowledge of God. And that's verses 12 and 13. Together, they will resist and overcome the attacks of the evil one, whose aim, of course, is to drag them back into darkness. And that's verses 13 and 14. Together, they will be strong. And I like the suggestion, perhaps, here, that sometimes it's the younger men and women who are encouraging the older people to press on. You can see what I, for one, perceive as being implicit in all of this, and that's the responsibility of older people, men and women, to teach younger men and women about the Christian faith. And there's a certain assumption, too, that younger men and women are prepared to learn. Whichever angle, as it were, we look at the challenge from nothing. But nothing is more important for the strength and the health of the church than this reciprocal, mutual teaching ministry. But woe betide those of us who are older people if we fail in that responsibility. Tragically, then as now, the false teachers are negligent in this. So then let's look at our final paragraph, and for those who are thinking a little bit linearly, it's number six in the list. True Christians are both to engage with the world and disengage with the world at the same time. Now, if you're a bit like me, it's at that point where you'd look, if you've got a modern Bible at the footnotes at the bottom, to see what on earth he's saying when he's saying apparently two contradictory things, uh, do this and do that, but if you do this and you do that, though they're contradictory, you're fulfilling God's will. Well, we don't have a footnote, at least not in the letter. It's almost as if John assumes that we know what he's already said in his gospel. And here perhaps it would be good to look at what he did say in two parts of his gospel to to help us understand. John chapter 3, Verses 16 to 19. The first part at least, very familiar. Here's John writing in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. But then verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict light light has come into the world but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil do you see already in those verses the tension that exists in our understanding of and our relation to the world around us If you look on to chapter 15 of John's Gospel, verses 19 and 20, and in this case, it's the words of Jesus that we have recorded, not just John's commentary. John chapter 15, verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And it's against that kind of background, if we turn back to 1 John chapter 2, that we're to understand verses 15 to 17 of the second chapter. We're both, on the one hand, to engage with the world and on the other hand, to disengage with the world. And bearing in mind what's recorded in the gospel, John now writes in his letter to Christians, reminding them that their status and their standing in the world has radically changed. Once upon a time in their everyday relationships, be it home or school or workplace, or college, they were accepted, just like everyone else. They were normal, quote, unquote. But the moment they became Christians, that all changed. Their status and their standing was different. Before they became Christians, they identified with the world around them that had deep down, as they had also, No time for God or what he told us about himself in the Bible, even less what the Bible tells us about our human nature, our sinfulness. Those days which were past were days when they were party to a way of life that both opposed God and was alienated from him. That was the reality which the Christians to whom John wrote were daily having to face. And many of them to whom he wrote still had, as do many of us, friends, colleagues, family members, who have no time for God, for he is, in fact, a stranger to them. But God's love is such that just as he reached out to us, so he continues to reach out to them also. And through prayer, through friendship, and through at times incredibly costly love, you and I are in like manner to reach out to them as part of the world, people that God loves, never, ever forgetting that once we were there too. But like John's Christians who first read this letter, that's no longer the space we fill. In this sense, engaging with the world is to be a constant and wholehearted relationship of love. Not feelings, not all those other words, but the agape love, which is God-given. We're to love, reflecting the love of God. And yet, at the same time, we now know God. And we know that he is faithful and just, as John puts it, to forgive us our sins. We now enjoy fellowship with God and we enjoy fellowship with one another. It may not be perfect, but it's something of a relationship on a totally different kind of dimension. And we're constantly encouraging one another, encouraging one another, as John is in verses 12 to 14 to match up what we believe with how we behave. You see, we now, as Christians, as part of the Church of God, view the the world around us with new eyes. In this sense, we cannot love the world as we once did, because we now know God. Now, of course, in verse 16 of chapter 2, when he talks about things that are in the world, it's obvious that he's not thinking about particular things as such. Money, for example, or possessions, or work, or study, are morally neutral. We can't say just like that money is wrong, or money is right possessions are wrong or right. That's not what John's saying, either. We're dealing with things that are morally neutral. Rather, he's writing about our personal attitude to these things. Food, friendships, the way we use our leisure time, sex, all of these, of course, can and are corrupted in the world around us. And that happens when we come to value them, God's created things, more than we value God himself. And verse 17 takes us, as it were, to the heart of the matter. The world and its desires pass away. Some of us have gone through a sort of a whole roller coaster of emotions over the rugby scene over the last few days. I'm feeling slightly more elated having seen Argentina win this afternoon, but that won't touch others particularly deeply. But you see, if our expectation of the world is foremost, that whether it's sport, whether it's relationships, whether it's possessions, whether it's the salary we earn or don't earn, whether it's the studies we do, whether it's the success that others reckon us to achieve, to have achieved or not, if our focus is on those things exclusively, sooner or later, we're in for a fall. But with God... It's not like that. And that's why John reminds us that we are to love God and not the world around us. Learning to seek God, learning to serve God, desiring God, delighting in God, this is our calling as Christians. As I thought of that verse 17, uh, I was also looking at a book with a quite lengthy quotation by one Jonathan Edwards. there have been lots of Jonathan Edwards over the years. This one uh, lived in the 18th century and was perhaps the greatest evangelist, preacher, theologian, and philosopher that the American scene has ever produced. And in state and secular universities, as well as Christian institutions, what he wrote is studied to this day. And he wrote these words about our need to delight and desire in God to seek God and to serve God above all else. And I quote him. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here on earth. These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Let's pray. I see that in a few moments we're to sing as our final song that amazing piece by Melody Green, There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. And my thoughts go to the fact that that was written when her <clears throat> musician, songwriter, husband, and some of their children had just been killed in a plane crash. But she could still write, Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Father, we ask whatever our circumstances, whatever the pressures of the world around us, whatever the delights of the world around us, that our gaze on you may not weaken, but be strengthened day by day. We ask, too, that you'll put in us the desire to share our faith with others, especially us, the older people, so that the next generation knows the good news and is thrilled to share it. So we thank you for who you are in your holiness and in your greatness, that you are light and love. Help us, we pray, to reflect on these things this coming week and to be the better for it. Amen.